good afternoon all the way from the bay area is that yes. right california yes yes so we we have dr jonathan z butler phd all the way from the bay area in california thank you so much for joining us on coco pods podcast this afternoon thank you for having me i mostly appreciate it and really like your energy your spirit <laughs> and i'm uh, privileged and honored to be here thank you thank you so much thank you so my name is dr bola sogadi i'm a women's health specialist and i'm the host of coco pods podcast a public education podcast in which we talk about all the issues of maternal mortality, especially in the state of Georgia, and all the issues of maternity and women's health. And like I said earlier today, we're fortunate to have Jonathan Z. Butler, PhD. Dr. Butler is a postdoctoral scholar at the University of San Francisco. Your research focuses mainly on how religion socioeconomic status, race, and ethnicity can affect one's health. Dr. Butler grew up in a lower economic area in Arkansas with your single mom. Looking at your mom's life through the lens of your eyes of a younger you, what are the unique challenges of a black single mom if it's even possible to summarize such an experience. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Bola. And I appreciate, again, the opportunity to come and share with your audience. And yes, I am from Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Pine Bluff is in the Delta region of Arkansas, Southeast Arkansas. It is a relatively poor neighborhood, but I will say that growing up, I didn't know that I was poor. One thing, my mom was a teacher and her income must have in that time been about maybe $30,000 a year. And she raised my sister and I, and we never were without food for sure. Uh, we always had a roof over our head, but there were some challenges that I did notice that as a young boy, I was a little bit more uh, mature than most of my peers. So I was a great observer. So there's a couple of instances, for example, where my mom, after laying us down at night, would go to a garden, a field to go pick greens so that we could have food. She would do that overnight, come back, clean the greens, cook the greens, go to bed, and then wake up again the next morning for school. So I watched my mother in, you know, struggling, trying to make things meet. And one of the challenges that I think that I recognized offhand was the fact that we, even though it seemed like we had it all, I know my mom now looking in retrospect was struggling financially, trying to meet the bills, make the bills, trying to put food on the table. I remember going to a fast food restaurant, Taco Bell, and we would go back and forth from one taco, you no, know, get two tacos, no one. And she would just as we are going in our purse, trying to find a quarter, another a dime, trying to get an extra taco to eat and then realizing that we got our taco, but my mom didn't. So there was a lot of struggling. But I say that what held us together was and I know we're going to talk about this is our faith. There was never a time where my mom did not get us up and take us to Sunday school on Sunday, no matter how rough the week was how difficult it was on Saturday night. Every single moment we got up for Sunday school, we got to church, 
every single Sunday, times that we didn't want to. And so even though we struggled, I think it was our faith that held us, that sustained us, that kept us going. And certainly that's what my mom wanted to instill in us, that even in life's struggles, whether it be financially, economically, socially, emotionally, you still need a faith, a, a hope, something that you can look forward to, something that you can have faith to know that it's going to get better. And that's what she's instilled in us. So yes, there are challenges, many of them. However, we were able to get out of those challenges because of our faith. We're going to talk some more about this, you know, and there's no way you can really summarize that kind of experience, but thank you for letting us in a little bit, you know. And, you know, Dr. Butler, you bring with you a unique background with much experience and knowledge of both religion and science. How does, number one, science and religion mix? And how does, so to speak, one good old pastor contribute in this kind of discussion? Absolutely. It's It's a great, fascinating question. And it's something that I have developed over time. So I went to school and I got a marketing degree, thinking I was going to be a Fortune 500 executive. And then in the middle of school, there was a call and there was a tug to go into ministry. So I decided to graduate early, go into ministry and go to seminary school in D.C. at Howard University School of Divinity. While in D.C. at Howard, my second year, there was a class that was taught on religion and health. And in that class is where I realized that this is exactly what I want to do. This is my passion. I've always had this passion about health and also religion. And so these things merging together was just something that I wanted to do. So the professor at that time, he wanted me to go into a Ph.D. program. And so I ended up going to Howard University to work with him and one of his colleagues. And I went into the field of of medical sociology. Sociology has many subfields within it. One of the subfields is religion. It's the sociology of religion. So I decided I would do my dissertation on the topic of religion and obesity in African-Americans to see You know, what are the associations? What are the relationships? So when you think about religion, when you think about science, many folks think, oh, that's just two different worlds. But they do mix. They can mix. And I think it's important for them to mix, primarily because there are certain religious experiences that we have that I've had as a young boy growing up. My mom, again, when I told you she was on this faith journey, that she kept us in church there are some health benefits to that. So that's where religions can come to play in terms of how it meets science, because there are some religious practices, especially that African-Americans do, but all Blacks around the country, that we have a sense of, of knowing that religion is like at the core of our being, not all, but most. And that grounding, that foundation, it oftentimes benefits us health-wise. So that means that there are many studies about even participating in a religious service has health benefits through the use of social support and how it actually has protective factors on our cardiovascular health. As a matter of fact, I did a 
a paper on religion and cardiovascular, ideal cardiovascular health. So we looked at how many, how frequent a person attends religion and how it's associated with having optimal cardiovascular health. And we found that there was an association that the more people just attended religious services, the better their cardiovascular health was, taking into consideration all those other cardiovascular risk factors. The same thing applies for religious practices like prayer and meditation. A lot of us are familiar with meditation. A lot of people outside of the religious sphere, they practice yoga as a form of meditation. All those have health benefits. It reduces our stress, which then, as we know, when we reduce our stress levels, then it leads to better outcomes in terms of our health. And that's exactly what I feel that my mom is able to make it this far in life because she used religion not as a way of promoting better health, but that was just what she was a part of. Like she was a part of the church, but not knowing that it comes with actually protective factors for our own health. And a lot of times when we, for example, today, uh, one of my members is celebrating, well, she's 104 years old at my church. And you can almost make the claim that it was because of her faith coming to church, her belief, her meditation, all those things combined that may have contributed to a better and a quality life in the long run. Now, take into consideration, there are some things in our religious spaces that don't promote better health. As many people know, after church, you get fried chicken or <laughs> all those unhealthy foods that may contribute to detrimental health conditions. However, what we do know in the science arena is that there is room for religion to help to promote our health. And that's what I want to bring out, that it is indeed something that can be studied. There is the notion also that, you know, spirituality can promote better health, which is different from religion. Religion is about practices like praying and going to church and meditating. But spirituality is more personal, subjective, which is hard to measure. So we it's hard to really capture whether or not that actually promotes better health. But particularly around religion, there are some definite, tangible things that we hold on to in terms of our religion that can promote better health. And so that's that's where I say when it mixes, it goes hand in hand. But what needs to happen now is the science allows us to actually make the claim that this is actually true. So we can look at it observationally and know it's true, but the science helps us to make the claim that it's true indeed. Wow, wow. You know, you talked about, you know, in America, but also, you know, I'm from Africa and I mean, gosh, so many people can attest to the fact that of what you said about the benefits of religion, even in countries that do not have access to health care like we do in America. And we had a psychiatrist come on the podcast once just talking about even the mental benefits of mm. religion on healthcare. So thank you so much for bringing that up. Dr. Butler, you are an assistant professional researcher 
in the Department of Family and Community Medicine and the Center for the Study of Adversity and Cardiovascular Disease Nurture Center. You are also a social epidemiologist and a minister with interests in the role of religion, childhood experiences, and psychological stress on health outcomes. Let me just ask you, at what age can one really go back to and remember one's childhood experiences? And how can these childhood experiences positively or negatively impact one's life? Like how are some of the ways, for instance, a person, a woman will live out health-wise to a negative childhood experience? Yeah, so thank you for that question. And as you know, in maternal health, it really starts with the woman, the pregnant woman. And a lot of the work that I do is about life course. It really starts there because just imagine if a woman who's pregnant is in a living condition that is harmful, right? There's so many factors involved in that. So even before the child is conceived, they are already going to be set up in a condition that is traumatic for a lot of women. And it's a lot of women that I know. And so when you think about a childhood and when is it that they can remember their experience, it really, I think, depends on the type of trauma that they experience. Like we know that adverse childhood experience is about like abuse and it's about violence and growing up in a family with, if there's like a mental health or substance use problem, right? And most of the times, whether or not the child understands what's going on, we know that it impacts them. So even if they can't remember that particular adverse childhood experience, it's still a part of them. And it can impact their, as the study suggests, their cardiovascular health in the long term. And then what I'm very much interested in, it is just not one adverse experience that many children that I know, especially in our church, have multiple adverse childhood experiences throughout the course of their lives. And that is what we have you know, termed, I know Bruce McEwen talks about allostatic load and stress and the wear and tear of our bodies. So just imagine, you know, a young person, again, who's in this living condition that's detrimental to their health. They grow up in poverty. They either grow up on the streets, which is very common here in San Francisco. They grow up among folks that are uses substances, whether it be smoking. They can even grow up in neighborhoods where there are toxic environments and they have to breathe in and just and then they go through their life course with this same type of trauma that they experience all the way up into their, whether they're adolescent, and then they're in this particular stage in life where they're developing and they're not able to fully develop. And it's just the list goes on and on. So it really starts with that woman and providing resources for that woman so that she can be in a place and a location so where that child, their trajectory is, is better. Because a lot of times what happens is people go through these stressful experiences throughout their lives. It wears and tears on their body throughout their lives. And our body's natural reaction is to be able to respond. That's what it, but at some point 
we've responded all that we can. There's no more resilience in us. <laughs> and so then we have to face those consequences later on in life. As we get older, our cardiovascular health, our mental health, our spiritual health actually deteriorates. And so when I think about a lot of the older generation now and how they've had to come through civil rights, Jim Crow, all of those stressful experiences, it in my mind suggests that there is a reason why a lot of Blacks have the highest chronic diseases such as obesity, diabetes, such as cardiovascular health, et cetera, because of the stress that is taking place all the way in their trauma and their childhood, which, you know, it, again, it started with their own mother and how we're birthed into conditions which are not favorable for us in the long run. So I think it's a very uh, important thing to, to talk about is that when we're talking about health, when we're talking about promotion, we're talking about policy interventions, we also have to think about this and from a life course perspective, that it just didn't start at 65 to where I got high blood pressure, that it came from a life course of many stressors, particularly in our childhood. And one more note about that is the conversation around mental health is that we're seeing a lot of crises, mental health crises in our adolescent children, especially in our church, because of the trauma that they've had to endure in their childhood. And as a matter of fact, that trauma actually exposes itself even in our adulthood days. So that's a lot of times we may be triggered and we don't even know we're triggered based upon some trauma experiences that we've had in our younger years, our formative years. So when you talk about what age, I don't know that answer, but what I do know is that a lot of times our trauma comes up and we don't even, we have because we haven't dealt with it, it just festers up and it reminds us as adults of the trauma that we've experienced in our childhood, just based on a trigger that has occurred 50, 60 years ago. So there's a lot to be said about that. that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Wow. Thank you for that. You've published a bunch of papers out there in your November, 2018 paper presented at the American Heart Association scientific sessions. You concluded that stress could actually cause diabetes, especially in older women. You have talked about this some more. What is this, if you can even define this cumulative psychological stress that you talked about, for instance, in this, your paper, that could actually lead to diabetes? I know you talked a little bit about, you know, stress, high blood pressure, but I would think sugar diabetes and stress. Yes. Very important topic. A lot of the research out there, when it looks at stress and some health outcome, it mainly will look at perceived stress. It's a popular Cohen stress measure that is used in the literature. So whenever you see a study that stress impacts your heart, stress impacts your obesity, diabetes, et cetera, it is only talking about one stressor. So when you talk about cumulative psychosocial stress, that's the type of stress that we all can relate to because we're just not impacted by one stressor. As I kind of alluded to in the last question in my answer, that people just don't have 
financial stress, that they live in environments that are stressful. They have stress at work. There's even stress in terms of trying to have a balance between work and family. There are stressors such as discrimination, you name it. There's so many stressors that impact a person all at the same time. And so when we talk about cumulus cycle social stress, it encompasses all of those things. So there's studies, yes, that suggest that perceived stress impacts diabetes, looking at one stressor. But what does that impact when you have all these stressors combined? And so what we found is that the relationship is a little bit more impactful. It's a more, it's a little bit more potent, if you will, that when people have all these combinations of stressors, it impacts diabetes or it is associated with diabetes a lot more than just one stress. And a lot of times we probably didn't pay a lot of attention to stress so much because we were just looking at that one factor instead of a combination of factors. Now, why is that important? Because when you think about interventions and policy, especially when you look at issues like obesity and diabetes, a lot of times folks will focus on, scientists will focus on just physical activity and diet. And if you get those two right, you're going to lose the weight or you're going to reduce your chance to have diabetes or cardiovascular disease. But they didn't take into consideration that there are some things that happen that prevent one from actually doing the diet and physical activity. And one of those things is stress. <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, when we say we're stressed, we're stressed out, we're overwhelmed, that life is too hard, that it takes us off balance, that we, as a consequence of stress, we don't work out the way we should, we don't eat properly. And that is in fact something that needs to be taken very serious because a lot of our interventions, our studies, our weight programs only focus on diet and physical activity, whereas stress, especially financial stress, can be a main contributor to actually that weight gain or that increase in your odds of diabetes or any type of cardiovascular related disease. So that's why this whole thing is important to me is because, as again, we can go back to that first question, growing up. With my mother, it wasn't just that she didn't have enough money, but she had work stress. I mean, all these stressors that compiled on each other. And then even when you think about children and the stresses that they have to deal with from trauma to then when they get older in age, it's the financial, the work, the family, discrimination, all these things combined can also have an impact on our health and it needs to be taken seriously. Later, I'm going to want you to talk about how we can, just what solutions out there. But, you know, you've talked about this today already. We talk a lot about the social determinants of health. Absolutely. What exactly are these determinants? And why is it so important for women, especially pregnant women, for these determinants to be properly understood? And... I know you're going to talk about stress as one of these things. What can we do? You know, what can the minority community do? What can we, so that we're just not overwhelmed and then it becomes a downward spiral of, okay, now we are aware of all these stressors and all these 
social determinants, and then we are sad about it, and then things spiral down. How can we mitigate some of these things? So please, first of all, talk about these social determinants of health in layman's terms. What are they? Yeah, I mean, people get sick before they get to the hospital. What are the reasons why they get sick? Okay, that's really dealing with social terms. What is out there in society that contributes to our sickness, that makes us go to the hospital? So when you think about social determinants of health, you're thinking about things like employment, which is a big one. If you don't have a job, if you don't have income, it's going to create this stress that we talked about that's going to make you sick. Okay, if you have to deal with trying to find housing or have to live on the street, it's going to have some harmful impacts on your on your health. No question about it. When you have to you live in an environment that's not safe, a neighborhood that's not walkable. That's the social determinants of health. Those things that happen in society that actually contribute to our sickness. When you think about education. For example, kids aren't educated. They're not being able to be in a position to actually get a job, to make a good income, to make a living. And you know that just sort of spirals down, right? When you talk about social determinants health, you talk about food access, food security, which is a big one. Many people are hungry. If you don't have food, <laughs> you're not going to be able to sustain yourself, right? Quality food, right? And so all of those things, access to health care access to health coverage. All those things happen outside of the hospital. So when you talk about social determinants health, it is those things. Education, housing, childhood experiences, income, employment, the communities that we live in, access to health, all those things, those conditions in which we're born in, which we grew up in and age in, and which we live and work, all those contribute to our health in a major way. And so if we're not focusing in on those things, then we're missing out on possible solutions. So one particular area that we're working on as a researcher is a lot of times when you're trying to make the claim that it is the social determinants of health, if you know you have to, you have to do a randomized clinical trial, <laughs> you got to kind of prove it from a scientific lens and so one of the things that we're doing is doing a community-based research project that encompasses the social determinants of health. So we're partnering with the YMCA, which is a, it's an organization for your audience that may not know, most people know, but it's, it's almost like a, a gym. People have a membership, they work out. There are also other resources for the community as it pertains to education, housing, et cetera. This particular YMCA in San Francisco has a diabetes prevention program, which is a year-long program designed to help one reduce their diabetes. And a lot of the program consists of a group study of the proper ways to eat, the proper ways to work out, et cetera. And they do this in this group setting to hold each other accountable for that for an entire year. Now, this study has proven to be very effective, but it's not as effective in Black communities, in disadvantaged communities. And so what we're going to do is incorporate a job component to it. So we'll have one group in this diabetes prevention program, and then the other group will be in a diabetes prevention program plus a job services where we provide individuals with case management 
to help them to find a job or if they have a job to help them get a promotion on the job. Because again, we believe that it's financial stress that contributes to this, this weight gain. And so that's one solution that if you're going to address the social determinants of health, one area that needs to be addressed significantly is family income, is finances. And if you can put people in a position to where they can get a job or be promoted to gain extra income to help their families to make a living, then it will bring about better health outcomes. At least that's what we believe. And a lot of times when we work, like, for example, I was on the committee for our soda tax committee for San Francisco, which was a policy initiative that is designed to help uh, communities do better in regards to diabetes. And so a lot of the resources were put into physical activity and food, but we neglected to incorporate some things like helping folks with housing, helping folks with unemployment, et cetera. And so as a a sociologist being on that board, I brought to light the social determinants because a lot of these things can, in terms of the solution, a lot of these things can happen in our policymaking. And so if you're not at the table articulating effectively how these social determinants contribute to our health, then it's going to be hard to, to get through to greater outcomes. So when you talk about solutions to the problems. A lot of problems in terms of our health, I always point people back to their childhood, how they grew up, and starting there. So if we want to start to change society, change our neighborhoods for the better, our communities for the better, we got to start with that pregnant woman, providing her with the resources so that child can grow into an environment that they can thrive in and grow and reduce the stress that they could succumb to had they not had that treatment. And then we have to continue to interject interventions. So we have to then go into our preschools, go into our grade schools, providing them with quality education, quality resources throughout their life course. That is the solution in my estimation, that we cannot begin to just focus on one area of a person's life and think that we can take care of it all, that a person is just not dealing with one issue at a time. So when we're talking about solutions, we have to think about the total person. Now, I'm not going to go on Sunday and preach to a parishioner, and that's the only thing I'm doing when they're hungry or when their child needs the proper education. I have to preach on a Sunday And I have to, Monday through Saturday, provide them with tutoring programs, with food through my programs, through all kinds of support that they need, because I got to meet the total person. And I got to do it from the youngest to the oldest. And I have to think about how it's not just that individual that lives in that household, but kids are living with their grandmother. So I can't feed the kid if I don't feed the grandmother, vice versa, that I have to consider again, the life course, the total person and the entire family, if I want to address these things. And a lot of times our work is done in isolation. And so we have one program here to meet this particular thing, whereas all these other things 
are needing to be taken care of. And I'll give you one example and I'll shut up that even in our pandemic, right? A lot of times, at least in San Francisco, city government would come in and vaccinate people or come in and test people. And they would say, oh, you need to do this. They'll give them a little incentive for doing this. But the same people that they were coming in to test and vaccinate, they didn't provide them with food and they were hungry. Okay, or they were trying to figure out what would be their their next month's, uh, how were they going to pay their mortgage for next month? So a lot of times our systems create, they perpetuate this type of detrimental you know, health condition in our community because they only focus in on the eye, but you got to focus in on both eyes, the nose, the face, the whole body, right? In order to make the person whole. What are some of the programs that you do? Question number one, I mean, by, by name. And then number two, the, the problem is so huge in that, you know, at times, you know, I had a nursing student come to me this past week telling me about how difficult it is just to be in school and that she felt that the system was geared against her in so many ways. So this is finally a minority student that made it into nursing school, despite all the odds that she has faced just growing up. And just to be able to maintain her position to graduate, she has to fight through so many things that America is throwing at her. So two questions. Can you tell us by name some of the projects that you you are doing? And then number two, it seems so difficult to overcome some of these social determinants of life, you know? Right. Absolutely. Great question. So one of the things that I'm very proud of is, so I direct a coalition of churches, 21 churches in San Francisco, that are most of the churches are located in our most impoverished community, and they happen to be black in San Francisco. And so this church started, this coalition started in 2016 because of the very thing that I talked about. Pastors were preaching to their congregants. We did an assessment of the congregants' needs that they were preaching to and found out that they were hungry and their pastors didn't realize it. So they were trying to find, they were trying to speed them this spiritual nourishment when their bodies were empty. And so they couldn't even, they couldn't even lift their spirits because of it. So what was decided is that these churches were going to come together to address hunger. And we were going to utilize the resources from the city of San Francisco, which is one of the wealthiest cities in the world, to provide for the congregants, but not only the congregants, but the entire communities in which they are housed. So that was before the pandemic. They had already established themselves. And so the pandemic hit and they were already doing some of the food work. And so they became the first coalition. We became the first coalition to actually feed our people during the pandemic. So the first thing is the importance of collaboration, the importance of coalition building. The churches realized that they would be more effective together than they were isolated. So that was the first thing, that they came together. The second thing, it was because of that establishment, 
when the pandemic hit, there were many philanthropists in the city that wanted to contribute to whatever organization was feeding people because they knew that food security would be the number one thing. So who did they come to? This already established coalition of churches. So we were able to, we received a million dollars to feed the community. The million dollars was given to minority-owned businesses to keep their staff employed, and they would in turn cook the meals and feed the community, feed our community. So since the pandemic, we are still feeding folks. We are at about 650,000 prepared meals since March 2020. <laughs> and so that is, I think, you know, a beautiful thing. It's a, it's a thing about how churches came together and in each part of our work, because we're not only doing now food security, but we're doing education. We're doing mental health work through referral services. We've been running vaccination clinics and testing clinics. And every aspect of what we do, we do it with a partner. We do it collaboratively. And that has yielded tons of resources in our organization because we believe, again, that we can never advance our people if we try to work in isolation, but we have to do it with somebody, even if, even if it's a city government, even if it's a philanthropist, even if it's with another uh, community-based organization, everything we do, we do it with a partner. And that has shown to be an effective way of at least meeting the immediate need of the people. And the good thing about this organization is whenever there's a crisis going around, no matter where people are in their spirituality, remember the last time they go into church, they're going to always gravitate to the church for their needs. And that's exactly what has happened. So we've been able to feed 1,600 households. So every single Saturday, we deliver produce. And every week throughout the week, we deliver prepared meals. And we've been doing that again since March 2020. And then when it comes time for vaccinations, one of the challenges of city lead governments and those health institutions is that they did not already establish a relationship to the community. So when they asked them to get vaccinated, the community is like, ho, ho, ho now, I don't trust you. So it was the church. Because we had been feeding the people, we were able to at least get the ear of the community and tell them the importance of getting your vaccination, of getting tested, of wearing your mask. And that is how San Francisco has now, at, we're at 83% vaccinated, is because we had organizations like the church that started even prior to the pandemic, meeting the needs of the people, continue that work through the pandemic. Now we're trying to transition out of this, this phase, but we haven't left the people. And a lot of times what happens are other organizations, especially our health institutions and our city agencies, they, they typically just leave the people. But the good thing about this coalition is it begins with, you know, meeting the needs of the people again throughout their entire life course. So you say the next question is, you know, this is hard work. Absolutely. It is extremely hard. That, as many people as we fed, we haven't fed everybody. 
<laughs> and that's crazy because we live in the wealthiest nation. This is one of the wealthiest cities. 40% of the homelessness in the city are Blacks. We only represent 5% of the population in San Francisco. So this work is hard because you have to you have to actually almost fight health systems or fight city agencies. The system itself is not designed to help us. It's not designed to create a path to quality health. So you have to then, what we've been able to supplement in terms of our resources. So we've gotten resources from the city, but we've also had resources from private donors, which is very important because the city will give you a dollar and ask you to stretch it for three years <laughs> and give you stipulation on how you need to use it. Whereas a private donor would say, just feed the people, do what you need to do. There's no reporting, there's no all this bureaucracy. Let's just meet the needs of the people. And then you can come back to them and say, listen, I need a little bit more. And they're more inclined to do that. So. Obviously, to do this work, we need money, we need resources, we need to build capacity, we need to uplift our people to get them to a place where they, they can actually come back to the organization and contribute to the next generation or those that are still sort of on the margin so that they can come back into society and be pr productive. So that is the goal. And we don't only want to do this in San Francisco, but we want to build this model across the country and also globally. So again, it, it really is about working as a team, collaborating, not doing it in isolation. And to be honest, a lot of a lot of us, you know, do that. We work in isolation, and that's why we don't move the needle per se.